this week on the Backtable podcast. Your endoscope is there. You can use it as a tool as well. You can use the endoscope to push quantum balls down, to release prosthesis down. You need to move the endoscope. The hand of your endoscope is dynamic. When I see, and that's some of the things that, that, that I did for many years, was we always said that the, you need to rest the endoscope on the upper superior portion of the ear canal so that you stabilize the lens. But the fact is that if you do that, you always, that endoscope is always going to be looking inferiorly. And so it's very important that you twist your hand and move your hand down so you can look at the upper corner. And people that are starting, don't re- that is one of the biggest frustrations when you're starting is that, yes, you can see inferiorly, but it's very hard to see superiorly. And that is just as simple as move your hand. Turn your hand down to the ear canal so your endoscope can be facing up and into that superior corner. And that makes your life easy. Hello, listeners, and welcome. This is the Backtable ENT Podcast. Here we bring you conversations with the best and brightest minds in otolaryngology, Our hope is that you can take this information and apply it to your own practice. I'm Ashley Agan, and I'm a general otolaryngologist practicing in an academic setting in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Gopi Shah, I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing at Children's Medical Center in Dallas. How are you doing today, Ash? Hey, Gopi. I'm so good. It's such a gorgeous, sunny day, and I feel like we are living right to have these two guests today. We're very lucky. I'm very excited for our podcast today on endoscopic ear surgery. We have two guests today, Dr. Brandon Isaacson and Dr. Alejandro Rivas. So um, so Dr. Isaacson, I've known uh, Brandon Isaacson for over 10 years now. I was <laughs> counting and I was like, dang. So uh, Dr. Brandon Isaacson is a professor of otolaryngology at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. He earned his medical degree at the Medical College of Georgia and completed his otolaryngology residency at the University of Michigan. He did his neurotology fellowship at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. He is a fellow of the American Neurotology Society, the American Academy of Otolaryngology, the American College of Surgeons, and the Triological Society. He's been awarded multiple teaching awards at UT Southwestern in 2008, 2012, 2017, as well as service and honor awards in 2010 and 2012 from the Academy of Otolaryngology. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I think for the listeners, having three teaching awards at UT Southwestern over such a long span, I just want to, that, that's a big deal. I was a pediatric ENT fellow and got to learn endoscopic ear with Dr. Isaacson. So. That's a huge honor, well-deserved. He's awesome. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Our next guest is Dr. Alejandro Rivas. I think it was in 2015, a colleague and I went and did the endoscopic ear course at Vanderbilt. And that was the first time I got to hear Dr. Alejandro Rivas speak and teach. And since then, I, you know, with just how engaged he was at the time, I knew uh, he was a pioneer in this. Dr. Alejandro Rivas is a professor of otolaryngology and neurological surgery at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. There at University Hospitals, he is the Richard W. and Patricia R. Pogue Chair in Auditory Surgery and Hearing Sciences, Division Chief of Otology and Neurotology, and the Director of the Cochlear Implant Program. He earned his medical degree from the Universidad Militar Nueva Granada School of Medicine in his hometown of Bogota, Colombia. 
He completed a research fellowship and his residency in otolaryngology at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland, and subsequently finished a neurotology fellowship at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a fellow of the American Neurotology Society, American Academy of Otolaryngology, and the Triological Society. He's the General Secretary of the Ibero-American Cochlear Implant Group. He's also a board member of the International Working Group on Endoscopic Ear Surgery. He's won an honor from the American Academy of Otolaryngology and was inducted as member of the Collegium, one of the highest honors in otolaryngology. Welcome to the show, Alejo. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. More importantly, it's an honor to be with Brandon. I feel that he's been a great friend of mine throughout the years. We both popularized endoscopic ear surgery in the United States, and we've been great partners over the years. So I'm very grateful to join the table with him. Awesome. Let's get into it. Uh, let's talk about endoscopic ear surgery. So for the audience who may not know, can you tell us what endoscopic ear surgery is and how is it different than traditional ear surgery? Alejo, we'll start with you. So there you can have many, many definitions of what endoscopic ear surgery is. Some people could call it nonsense. Some people could call it a, <laughs> a threat. Some people would call it a great uh, application of a tool. I think that endoscopic surgery is a, it's, it's a different way of looking at the ear. Before, I don't think that either Brandon or I invented anything that wasn't already existed. We just started to use it in the United States. And so endoscopic ear surgery had, had been present. My father's a neurologist, even since my father was 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 practicing his, in his 80s now. And so the stories that he tells me was he once tried to use an endoscope in the ear and he was all bloody and he was all full of blood. And some people were trying and some that some people was Dennis Poe was trying to use it in the middle ear space, but it was extremely pixelated and, and, and the technology wasn't there. And so when Brandon and I started to use the endoscope, we had the right technology the, at, the, at our uh, fingertips. So we were able to use the endoscope to do middle ear procedures and to, and to get access to a middle ear space. I think that the biggest advantage that the endoscope has provided is the ability to see the middle ear and access the middle ear to anybody that wants to do ear surgery. Before, I think that using the microscope, you had, you doing ear surgery, you need to be highly trained, but the visualization is difficult and the understanding the ear is difficult for many people that do not do that day in and day out. With the endoscope, you get access to that better visualization and that, that ability to see the middle ear structures, the crevices of the middle ear space, the corners, and just understand how it looks how it works and how you manage their, its disease. So I think that, that that's endoscopic ear surgery in my mind. And so, you know, Brandon, when you first started doing it, I mean, for, so I finished residency in 12. I did not have any exposure of putting the endoscope in the ear. I think at that time, maybe a handful of times I can think of, you know, one of my attendings at Jeff or at the pediatric hospital at DuPont, maybe kind of just take it a peek. And even then that was very rare. And I think it was when I was a fellow with you in 14 that we started doing cases. And I was like, wow, this is like, to me, I love sinus surgery. This is like sinus surgery in the ear. How did, how did you get exposed to it? And how did you develop that into your practice? 
So I, you know, I read a number of articles about endoscopic ear surgery. I remember them from a surgeon out of the Middle East named Moaz Terabici, and it sounded like an interesting technique. I was a bit skeptical and, but ended up deciding to do a course in Toronto and did the course and was convinced that once upon, once I did the course that I think it would be a, that I thought it would be a useful tool in middle ear surgery. And so that was in the spring of 2014. And then I went ahead and just started doing cases. We already had all the equipment we essentially needed. And, and I started, my first case was a globus tympanicum and, and my whole, that's not the, that's not a good case to start with, <laughs> but the whole point of the case was just to elevate a flap, but learn how to elevate, get into the middle ear. And that was my intention with that case is at least to get some practice elevating a flap. Cause that's kind of one of the initial barriers of the technique is getting used to using one hand and use using the camera in your left hand and, or if you're right-handed and instruments in your, in your right hand and getting used to one-handed surgery. And I kind of just took off from there. And, you know, I was fortunate enough that, you know, I'd been in practice for about eight years when I, by the time I started the technique. And so it'd been a long time since I used an endoscope, like 10 years, but a lot of the, the actual surgical maneuvers that you do are, are very similar, you know, within the endoscope, there's a few nuances again, cause you're limited to one hand, but it, it wasn't that hard to adapt. And I felt that, you know, even early on when I was first starting this, working with residents and fellows that they were pretty quick to pick it up because they were already using the endoscope for doing sinus cases and airway cases. And, and things like that. So they, it was some, a little bit sometimes frustrating from my standpoint that, oh, they made that look easy. And I just struggled with that. But, you know, over time, like anything, you know, with, with enough repetition, I, you know, became more facile at it. I noticed the training is also becoming more facile at it. And, and it's, that's what we I've been using ever since for doing a lot of most of my middle ear work and even some you know, lateral skull base work as well in selected cases. I remember the a journal club from maybe like when I was a PGY2 or something, when, when we were reading these articles about endoscopic ear surgery and talking about, you know, pros and cons and, you know, isn't this interesting? And then, you know, by the time I graduated, we, that was, we'd done so much endoscopic ear cases that I felt, you know, super comfortable doing that. So it, it evolved pretty rapidly once you started doing it. I think that it's, it's, that's, that's an in interesting point. I think that when we started, and I think that, that I don't know if this happened to Brandon, but it, it certainly happened to me. When I started doing endoscopic surgery, I wanted to do everything endoscopic. Part of it was, I don't, I didn't know what the limitations were, how it wasn't clear, but also I wanted to get better at it, right? And so I was trying to, and I pushed the, I pushed the envelope in, in, in many ways, probably too much. I took on into big cholecystomas trying to get them through the ear on only to realize that four hours later I had not been done and, <laughs> and it was time to finish, you know? So over time, I would say that we move, we push so, so hard and so fast. And now I've become a lot more thoughtful and meticulous and, and regimented on what cases I do endoscopic and which ones I, I don't, and which ones I even try or which ones I don't even try. And so it, it has significantly changed. At the beginning, I would say that I was doing 70% to 80% of my cases endoscopic, you know, today, now those numbers have, and I did that for three to four years. And then as we got progressively more adapt and knew the limitations and what was more efficient doing it this way or that way, now those numbers have gone down, for example, 
sometimes I would say 40, 60, still a little bit more endoscopic than microscopic, but it's a much balance and we know the limits much better now. So speaking of indications and limits, I guess, if, do you think about it as certain surgeries are better for endoscopic or are there certain an anatomy or imaging findings that you look at? What, what, what are the limitations or, you know, and what would make a good candidate for endoscopic ear surgery? Well, I, you know, there's, I mean, like Alejandro was saying, I think I had the same issue in that I tried to do everything endoscopically and, and you quickly figure out, you know, several hours later too long that maybe that wasn't the best idea and certainly not from a, you know, from a time efficiency standpoint. So I, you know, I would say that indications would be really anything, any middle ear disorder is probably, you know, the, the purview of the endoscope in, in, in most cases. You know, exceptions would be is if you have a really small ear canal um, and you're going to need extensive canal plasty, then probably the microscope's going to be a better option. Although you can do canal plasty with the endoscope, it's just more time intensive having to drill with one hand and not have the ability to irrigate as easily or suction. If, if there is extensive disease process in the mastoid, then that's, you know, again, my indication that this is going to be a, com a likely a combined case. Or if it's, say I have a really, in, you know, extensive clusiotoma with lots of granulation and, and potential bleeding, then that's potentially going to be mainly a microscopic case. With respect to things like stapes, I think that's really surgeon preference. I, I love doing stapes with the endoscope because I hate using the speculum and I feel like my view is, you know, that much better, but you know, the results, you know, in, in most series show that the outcomes are really not that much different between, you know, endoscopic versus microscopic stapes surgery. For skull-based disorders, I, I think I definitely kind of pushed a little bit too far on that. And I still do some trans-canal lateral skull-based work, but it's, it's just too hard to, you know, remove otic capsule bone with the drill with one hand. It just takes too long. And so if I do those approaches, I'm typically using a trans-canal microscopic approach. If in the rare circumstances that I'm doing it, other than maybe like a glomus tympanicum or something like that. So like, like Alejo said, I think they're, you know, I've definitely pulled back on some of the stuff that I used to do endoscopically or try to do exclusively. And it definitely has a, a significant place in my practice, but the microscope is still uh, a very, you know, eminently useful tool that I use on a routine basis. You know, things like cochlear implantation or any trans approach it. In my mind, it doesn't make a lot of sense to use the, the endoscope. Brandon, what do you, what would you say your split is these days now as far as? Um, for, I, I probably similar to Alejo, I'd probably say, you know, 60% endoscope, certainly for middle ear, it's, it's going to be more, mostly endoscopic, but if it's, if it's like extensive chronic ear disease, then I'm usually doing that as a combined case, but there's, it's rare for like any tympanoplast, even a lateral graft that I have to use a microscope. And when we look, for example, at, at cholecystoma surgery, I mean, there has been, we've come up with very standardized indications and, and, and limitations. I know that Brandon published on that, we did too. But so the, the I, I think it's important to mention specifically cholecystoma. So if you have a cholecystoma that is, as Brandon said, limited to the middle of your space, that's, you do it with the endoscope. But if you start seeing a cholecystoma that has significant amount of erosion, of the, of the ossicle, of the incus specifically. If you see a completely opacified mastoid, if you see a, a hollow tympanical acetoma with demineralized, demineralized bone, 
Obviously, if you see erosion of the lateral canal, all of those are things that you have any signs of extensive, extensive disease. And so I would, in, in, I would argue that I would like, at least that's what I do in my practice. I'm not going to try to try to remove that cosetoma through the ear canal to begin with. I'm just going to go from behind. I might use the endoscope as a, yeah, through as a combined approach and just to make sure that I'm not leaving any disease behind. But I'm not going to be this, not going to be spending the time trying to elevate that, trying to get to the middle of your space when I know that eventually I'm going to go from behind. So, and that comes down to that efficiency, right? If you start that case through the ear canal, then you're going to spend a lot of your time in the middle of your space, and then you're going to have to convert, and then you have to go an incision behind the ear, and all that ends up, ends up in time for the patient, time under anesthesia time where you need to get to your next, next case. So those I just start from behind. Now there are sometimes there's the CT scan shows that there's limited disease in the middle of your space. And if there's limited disease in the middle of your space, I will try to take that out endoscopically. And sometimes I'm mistaken, but I'm willing to take that chance on those cases. Those are the ones that I think that it's, that you should try endoscopic and then if need convert. And so that's, that's the one thing that I, th that, that one of the most important things that I've learned throughout the years. The other thing is, is stapes. For regular stapes, I agree with Brandon. Now, when we look at congenital malformations, when we look at, um, at pediatric stapes, when we look at revision stapes surgery, I think that the endoscope provides a very, very good advantages. We don't, we haven't demonstrated outcomes improvement because all of those, the numbers of all of those are small. So it's hard. Maybe once Brendan and I combines our series in 10 more years, we might be able to show that, that difference, but I'm, I can see the, 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 the problem much faster and, 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 and that poses, I believe that it poses better outcomes, you know, and I'm not going to steal Brandon's thunder, but I think that he is soon to publish a paper that shows better outcomes in osteoplasty. We tried that before together and, and it showed that it might, that there was a trend, but we were not getting there with the endoscope compared to the microscope. But I just interviewed one of his medical students who's working on a project like that. And so I grilled her about it and she told me some very interesting results. So Brandon, tell us about that, please. So I do, I do think there are some distinct advantages you know, as Alejo was saying, particularly with, you know, revision stapes and pediatric stapes, um, because those do have oftentimes have unique anatomic variants. The other day I was doing a middle exploration on a kid, a child who had a, I'd done a previous tympanoplasty on, they still had a significant conductive loss and they had a, you know, the eardrum looked fine. There was no perforations. And when I looked in the ear, I, I really couldn't find anything obvious other than that the stapes seemed to be a little bit less mobile, which is very subjective. I mean, it takes, I don't know how many cases to kind of figure out, and I still haven't completely figured out what's, what is, you know, obviously there's completely fixed stapes is easy to figure out, but when it's kind of like partially fixed and not moving in this case, the patient had a tiny little bar of bone coming from the undersurface of the pyramidal process and going to the posterior cruise. And I don't, I don't think there would be any way I would have seen that with a microscope, you know, and, and in that case, what we ended up using a laser and some uh, like a rosin needle essentially to kind of divide that little bridge. And I don't know what the outcome is yet, but I don't, there's no way I would have seen that before. 
Yeah, I think the one of the most amazing things about using the endoscope is the what you know what you're able to see. You know, just you know, as a as a learner, I remember you know when we you know able when we started looking at the middle ear with an endoscope, things clicked a lot faster. And like all of a sudden, I was like, oh, that's you know that structure and that. And so I think you know particularly in the academic setting, that's that's a huge advantage. Can you guys talk about? you know, just kind of maybe compare and contrast the benefits of the different techniques? I mean, endoscopic versus traditional with a microscope? I think the the big benefit is obviously the view that you get. Um, you get essentially instant magnification. And unlike the microscope, when you zoom in or you bring your endoscope closer to the structure that you're visualizing, the light actually increases instead of decreasing. And so in these really, in these, like, like I've seen cases of like a state piece cruel fracture and there's there's just, and there was some scar tissue and there was just no way I would have been able to really, I think it have been very difficult to identify that, you know, prior to me initiating use, using the endoscope. So the visualization is great. I think from a teaching perspective, I think it's fantastic because we're all looking at the same thing, like it's like, like a sinus case or any endoscopic case. It's very easy for me to point out anatomic variants or normal anatomy or abnormal anatomy. It's also easy for me to instruct like, Hey, this is where you need to make your incision right here and this is where you want to go it's much easier for me to point out on a screen than it is with a instrument in my left hand or right hand you know in the field with the microscope so from a teaching perspective i think it's fantastic i do think it's harder to do because again you're limited to one hand and i think that takes some you know a, a longer period of time for people to adapt to that and then getting used to you know the not having collisions with your your hands with the endoscope and your instruments and knowing how to position yourself relative to the patient to get an ideal angle on how to make incisions and do those types of things. It takes definitely some time to learn how to do that. And again, losing one hand, I think is a, a big obstacle barrier that or, or and barrier that people need to overcome. But I, for me, that trade-off is, is worth it. I think the views that I get and the, the, you know, the ability to teach certain things, I think is in my mind, a significant advantage. And, but at the same time, I feel like all of our trainees need to know how to Anybody you're training to do ear surgery needs to know how to use bowl techniques. You need to know how to use the microscope. There, there are definitely, there's a significant amount of otologic surgery where the microscope is the go-to visualization tool that you need. And there are certain cases where the endoscope, I think, has uh, substantial advantages over the microscope. Just, I guess, getting into like tips and setup and equipment. I guess the first, first basic question, do you always have your microscope in the room draped, ready to go? Like, is that part of when, you, even though you have, when you post your case and it says endoscopic tympanoplasty, is the microscope always there or do you have to, or do you selectively, you know, know when you think you'll need the microscope? So for the first years, yes, and the microscope was always there and draped, but today, no, not necessarily. So it depends what case you're doing. Uh, today, I would say that, that. If I'm doing a colostectoma case, the microscope is, is the microscope is always in the room, but it is not draped. If unless I know that I'm going to do a combined approach, and then I'm going to I'm going to use I'm gonna, it's going to be ready for then. If it's a second look for colostectoma, for example, it will be in the room, but it's not draped. For stapy surgery, it's not in your, it's not in the room anymore. It's just it's the one it's outside of the room. It's easily to be to have it available. It depends where, where you're working. You know, if you're working in a if you're in a surgery center where you know that you can leave your microscope outside the room and nobody's going to take it, then then you can leave it outside <laughs> of the room. 
But if you're at a risk of you're in a big, big general operating room with everybody else, then you might want to keep that in, in, in Microsoft in the room because it might not be there when you need it. So, but th those are the, those are the main issues with the, with the microscope. Now, in terms of setup, yes, I think that I think that uh, setup is, if anything, is the most important. Is one of the most important portions during endoscopic ear surgery. I like to. I have the first is starts with preoperative planning and talking with your anesthesiologist. I think that it's very important that you tell them that you want, like in sinus surgery, having something that decreases bleeding is going to be beneficial. And like sinus, a combination of, so Tiva is going to be great. Ideally, a combination of propofol with remifentanil will, would, would be good. But depending on the OR and depending on the anesthesiologist, that you can get some pushback uh, about it. And so, and so what I've, I've compromised and I said, okay, when I get pushback, I say, okay, give me 80% Tiva and a little bit of gas. And then that seems to, and this is like, like that. And so. Uh, just sprinkle a little. They, yeah. Just a I don't know. That, that gives them the powers. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so that works. Ultimately, what you want to do is decrease the cardiac output. And so when you, when with Tiva, what you do is that, is exactly that. You get less vasodilation that you get with gas. And because you get less vasodilation, then you can bring down both your heart rate and your blood pressure. So you want to aim for a map of 60 and a heart rate of 60 in an adult and in children's just according, whatever it's, it's appropriate according to the age. And with that, you get less bleeding. So that conversation starts preoperative with the anesthesiologist. You want to make sure that you want to make sure that the cough, like any other ear surgery of the blood pressure is on the opposite side. So the uh, cough is not going up and down and, and pushing your arm. But you want to be able to have a chair or a system where you can rest your, 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 your elbow. The Italians, which is the people who I learned from, they, my good friend, um, Daniel Marconi, he likes to operate standing. So he doesn't use anything when he just keeps his elbow close to his, to his uh, body and that stabilizes the, his arm. I am a near surgeon training in surgery in the United States. So we all sit, we don't like to stand. And so, and so I sit and, and so I have an arm with, with, with somewhere to put my elbow. And in my case, it's a dental chair now with a back in front of me. You want to have a monitor, obviously, that is as in front of you as possible as and at the, at the same level as your eyesight. So you don't want to be looking up because then your neck is going to hurt by the end of your third case. So part of the part, one of the beauties of endoscopic surgery is it gives you good ergonomics. And so I'm hoping that I don't have to get cervical surgery like my father in his 60s by doing this, that I can achieve that, that'd be awesome. I, and I believe endoscopic ear surgery helps with that. And then injections and, and control of bleeding. So important is safety. You need to make sure that the light is not higher. I used to say 60, then I said 50. Brandon has gone to 20. I'm not as, I'm not as, as. He uh, takes I, vitamin A supplements. Yes, I know. I, <laughs> I go to 40. Now I'm going at, at to 40. But a lot of that is is is, a, is possible because of the advancement in video technology and 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 the ability to increase the brightness on the screen as opposed to increasing the light the light source and that's useful because you don't want to you don't want to burn the ear. Brandon, 
take it on after that because there's more tips that you, that you and I share. So yeah. So as far as you know, light settings, I've I've gone down as low as ten, I and mean, sometimes that's just not enough. And now, I, as Alejo said, I set the light source at twenty. You also be keep in mind what light source you have. There are different light sources out there. And so I would discuss that with your local rep of whatever company you're using for your light source. I would echo the anesthesia tips that Alejo mentioned. When I, I, when I first started, I think I did my injections with the microscope and now it's, I've gotten pretty facile and, and doing the injections with the endoscope and that does save some time. And, you know, I teach our residents and fellows how to do that as well. And I think that the injection is really critical and giving the injection some time to work. And so the order in which I do the case is once I've cleaned the ear a little bit, if it's, if it's not inflamed, I'll go ahead and do my injection and then I'll trim the hairs with a curved iris scissor. And that gives some time for more time for the local to work. And so. Brandon, are you injecting bupivacaine or marcaine? Yeah. So I, I tend to use marcaine. You can use lidocaine. Uh, the marcaine is one to 200,000 epinephrine, which I've sometimes concentrated up to one, one to 50,000 epinephrine by added, adding a little additional epinephrine. I think also an important safety measure is and bleeding control tip. We typically use the cottonoids, the quarter by quarter inch cottonoids. I cut the strings off. Some places won't allow you to do that, but we soak those into one to a thousand epinephrine. So from a safety tip, I don't let them, I don't let anybody put the one to a thousand epinephrine on the field until after I'm done injecting and all the needles are off the field. The last thing you want to do is inject epinephrine into a patient who's not coding um, and make them code. So again, I make sure all the needles are off the field prior to putting the one to a thousand epinephrine on the field. So, so yes, I usually use Marcane. Disadvantage of Marcane is that if you infiltrate enough local and it gets in the middle airspace and you have a dehiscent facial nerve, they could wake up with a facial weakness um, that lasts longer <laughs> than lidocaine. And then if your facial nerve is anesthetized, then your nerve monitoring is not going to be effective. So just other things to, to keep in mind uh, if you're using those things. There is a dental syringes, dental carpules. That's what I used to use at Vanderbilt, but I don't have that anymore. So I use what Brandon just talked about. But if you have a way, a way to get those carpule dental syringes, they're great for all your cases, not for all your cases, because you have, they're color-coded. There's, they're 2%, 1 to 1,000, and 2%, 1 to 50,000. And so you never have to worry about uh, whether you're going to inject the wrong thing uh, or put the wrong thing on the, at the wrong time. So uh, that is very, very useful. One of the things that I've learned over time, I used to, so I used to inject the ear posteriorly, and then I would make an, an injection from behind, from the posterior area towards the ear canal before I went outside and, and, and scrub so that I would start to get kind of local control. Well, I'm not doing that anymore. And I discourage everybody to do it, especially if you're doing perforations, because by doing that, a lot of times you, you make the middle ear space very, very oozy because all of that lidocaine that you put from behind starts to ooze into the middle ear space. And then when you're trying to fix a perforation and put gel foam to put your fascia graph and you become so very, very soupy and, and you struggle. So. And I did that for years now, and I don't do that anymore. I just do a very little less than one, less than 0.5 cc's posterior injection, and then only inject a little bit uh, in through the canal when I'm already scrubbed. I don't notice any changes in terms of the control of, of blood. 
but I do notice a huge amount of difference in how soupy the middle ear ends up being during my reconstruction or doing doing during my placement of the graft. So I think, and and that's and I've just been doing that for the last probably for the last year. So those are that's a little tip that I just I just learned. In term in terms of um, scopes, do you always start out with a zero? Do you go straight to a thirty? How wide are your scopes? What are the lengths? So I I use the three millimeter diameter scopes when I first started. I use the pediatric, which are, I think are 2.7 millimeters in diameter or 2.8. And the problem with those is they're 18 centimeters long and they're much easier to bend and break. Unfortunately, I've done that a few times. And so the three millimeters are perfect. I think they're 14 centimeters in length and that's kind of ideal. I don't think you want to go any shorter than maybe 10 or 12 centimeters in length, but the three millimeter diameter are really perfect for endoscopic ear surgery. I start most of my cases with the zero and then I'll use um, a 30 occasionally for stapes or tympanoplasty, but I'll use the 30 a fair amount with, uh, with uh, cholesteatoma work. I know Alejo likes the 45 degree. If you were to pick two scopes, I, you know, at least in the past, he preferred the zero and the 45. I, I've gotten used to having the zero and the 30 and it's occasionally I'll use the 45 and then very rarely I'll use the 70 and the 70 can be very dangerous because you. Um, are just, it's just a completely distorted view and especially using instruments with the 70, I would not advise, especially if you're just starting and I would stick with the zero and, and either the 30 or 45 for selected circumstances. Those scopes are, again, are 14 centimeters in length. If you use something really long, then the camera ends up in your face and you end up contaminating your field. If it's too short, then you're, if it's like a, one of those little mini ear scopes that you see in clinics, sometimes there's not enough room to get both hands in the operative field to do, to do the case. So the. Again, the three millimeter diameter, 12 to 14 centimeters in length are, are kind of the ideal scope. Other instruments, honestly, the first year I just used the standard ear instruments I had before. I didn't have anything special, but there are a few instruments I think, which are really helpful for endoscopic ear. If you're first starting out the suction elevators, or even if you're not just starting out, the suction elevators are wonderful instruments. I know Alejo has, has one or two that he's designed and there are several others that are out there that are quite good. And there are a few other instruments that I like. I like a, something called a plester knife, which is like a, a side, a, a septoplasty D knife, but much smaller. I use that for canal incisions. There's something called Thomason dissectors, which are like crab tree dissect, like a crab tree dissector, like a hockey stick uh, type instrument, which are quite useful for chronic ear disease. And then the other instruments, I actually will use disposable suction. Sometimes you can buy the sets that have all the different angled suctions, which are really nice. But if you're working with lots of different places, it's hard to get all those, you know, everywhere to order those instruments. And so I'll take the, dis there's disposable suctions using pediatrics for tubes. Sometimes I'll use those in 18 and I'll bend the tip. If I'm trying to reach into the attic, so I'll, be them, I'll just bend the tip on those and you can throw them away afterwards. And so I, that's what I, I've used for, you know, different suctions. And, you know, those are kind of the, my kind of go-to, go-to thing, instruments that I use. And then there's a couple of disposable knives that I like. There's something called a 5910 blade, which is a little arachnoid knife. And then a 7200 blade I use for canal incisions. Yeah, those are beaver, beaver knives and they're they're great. They're great because they're always sharp. So you always make the cut that you need to make. So I, I, I like those as well. There are some, some dissectors that are useful that have double ended, not double, well, that are, have two bends so you can fit in the canal. I like those for removal of around the, 
around the foot plate, you need to have good right angles. It doesn't have, I mean, if you can have one that have, you can have the ones that have two, two bends that are great. But if you don't have them, that's fine too. But you need to you need to have good right angles, probably one shorter and one one and one small to be able to remove colostoma disease, which you normally do in your regular ear instrumentation. You need a very good house curette or J curette so that you can you can remove bone and scutum to see either for if you're doing stapes surgery, you're gonna need to do that. If you're gonna do colostoma surgery, you're gonna need that. You can use a drill, but it's cumbersome. And if you get used to using the curette, you'll become with the endoscope. There's no, there's no question about where that curette is going to end up. And so you become very facile at using it. So you just need to be sharp. Aleha, when you are doing pediatric ears, are there different considerations in children or are there any other different types of instruments or scopes that you use in your kids? No, I use exactly the same ones. You, you. People can argue that that you get a four millimeter endoscope could allow you to see get a get a uh, better details or a little bit better visibility. I I don't think that between four and three there's a big difference, but I do feel that there's a big difference, especially in children, to be able to fit a four millimeter endoscope into the middle of your cavity. So if you use a four, and that's true in adults, to be honest. If you use a four millimeter endoscope, a lot of times you have to leave your endoscope much further kind of away from the tympanic cavity because it just doesn't fit with another in, with your other hand. And then you end up with the worst of both worlds. You end up from a distance view with, uh, in 2D. And the microscope gives you a distance view in 3D, which is much better. And so the beauty of the endoscope is being able to get that, that lens all the way down into the middle of your cavity. And that you can do with a 3 millimeter scope. So just, you know, thinking about the, the learning curve to, to kind of get into doing endoscopic surgery for, for those of our listeners who may be thinking they want to, you know, learn and develop this technique. Was there a point when you guys felt like you, you know, things clicked and it became easier? You know, is there, an, when you think about, you know, number of cases or time or something, you know, when you thought, okay, I'm, I really feel like I've you know, I don't know if I want to say mastered, but you know, your your things you get getting the hang of it. Do you have is there a is there a number that you feel like is a good recommendation for 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 people who are learning? Hmm. I think that's tricky. Trick good question, but tricky question. I, I think everybody's different. Everybody's learning curves are different. I think if you are you know have done a number of your cases or your experience to your surgeon, I don't think it's too difficult to pick up. And, and you can almost say the same thing if you're, if you're inexperienced, I mean, if this is what, how you learn, it's, you know, you'll, if with enough repetition, everybody needs maybe a different, there's a, a wide range of what, well, how many reps people need in order to feel like they've kind of gotten the technique down. I do think doing courses are helpful right now. That's a very challenge, a significant challenge because, because of the pandemic, there's not really an in-person courses. There's lots of, you know, Zoom lectures and things like that, but that doesn't, you know, give you the experience of working, you know, working in the lab. And certainly you could do that at your, if you're a trainee, you can, if your institution has a temporal bone lab, you can simulate, the, simulate that, you know, a course in the lab using fresh frozen uh, specimens that works quite well. And that's what we use the courses, but it's, it's hard to replace that in-person experience right now. And so I think everybody has a different number, I think on, on when they feel comfortable with it. And I like anything, the more reps you do, the better you'll get at it. And there is this 
there is this, I don't, I don't, again, I don't think there's really necessarily a magic number. I just think it's, you know, you take your time, you do it. I think there is a bal- there is a balance between being patient with the technique because at first you're going to, you're going to get frustrated at first. And it's a matter of kind of being patient and being a little bit stubborn and sticking to it. And there's also a balance of when to know that, you know, Hey, I need to move through this case or this isn't working. And so it's, that's, I still sometimes struggle with that balance of when is the right time to convert? I think Alejo's done a better job at that than I have, but I think the resident's going to test to that working with me, but I think everybody's different on, on how long it's going to take them. I think that it, that more important than how many cases you need to do. I agree with Brandon. I mean, I don't, yes, we, we had to learn from, from very little and yes, we learn on the way. But there are so many courses nowadays that, that, that are available or once the pandemic finishes that will be available that, that there's no reason why, why people should struggle. Even, I mean, I, I know I took, I went to Italy and I took courses before I started. Brandon did the same and it's the safe way of practicing. And so I wouldn't, it just, I wouldn't recommend just just going at it, you know, because you feel comfortable being an ear surgeon. Like, yeah, we need to, we need to be careful with our patients and we need to do no harm. So, so courses, uh, courses before maybe one or two, I certainly did that is, it's very beneficial. And in terms of learning curve, I think that maybe not necessarily how many cases you need to do to do them, but, but the order that you decide be strategic on what cases you want to do at, at what rate then is, in, is on you. But I think that is important to, I would say, do less involved, do a posterior perforation first. You know, those are not that difficult. Do then an anterior perforation. Those are a little bit more difficult. Maybe a lateral graph. I don't do lateral graph, so I cannot attest to that. Brandon can. Then move on to uh, ocycloplasties. Then move on to cholecystoma. And then at last move on to stapes, which is kind of is limited benefit on, on doing it endoscopic. And it's a high stake surgery. So. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Another thing I, I wanted to, to ask you guys, you know, when I am seeing patients in clinic, I've noticed, you know, a lot lately, particularly for patients who have any sort of like eustachian tube dysfunction, patchless eustachian tube, ear fullness complaint, you know, I'll, I'm scoping them anyway. So I'll, you know, put the scope in their nose. I'm looking at the eustachian tube. And then, and then a lot of times I'll put the scope in their ear and I'll just kind of, you know, take a look because I can snap, that way I can snap a picture. I can show them what the ear looks like. And since I started doing that, I feel like I see things I didn't see sometimes when I was just looking with the microscope in, in the clinic. And so I was just curious if you guys were using the endoscope in clinic a lot or, or at all. And, you know, if that's been helpful. So we work at the same clinic, but <laughs> so I, I, we have an image capture device that is like a video otoscope that I use to capture, capture clinic visits. Certainly endoscopes in clinic work great. I just, you know, I've not had access to those, but having some ability to capture intra or uh, clinic visit patients, I think is really valuable. And there's definitely things on that little video scope, otoscope that I've picked up that I haven't seen with the microscope. And the cool thing about it is you can, again, capture that picture, but you can also capture video on some of these devices. And so I've had patients, like you said, with that I thought were going to need, maybe, maybe they needed a tube or consider a balloon eustachian tubaplasty. And then I've had them pop their ears with the video otoscope and you can watch the microscope too, but I was able to record and see that they were, they, even though they had a retracted drum, 
they immediately were able to Valsalva and lateralize it. And those patients are probably more patchless and do chronic sniffing and have created their retraction as opposed to someone who's got a, a true eustachian tube obstructive dysfunction. So I do think, I, I do agree with you that, that the ability to capture these images and with an endoscope or, or a flexible scope or a video otoscope are, are very helpful. I tell you from a perspective of the patients, it's, it's very important, especially in pediatric population. Okay. And the reason for that is the parents want to know what's happening. And when I look at the, uh, and, and so now we're at, at university hospitals, I, we have a very big system. So I have clinics throughout all over Cleveland. So we not always, I can, I used to, I, we, at Vanderbilt used to be very centralized. There's one clinic, so you can stack up all the equipment in one clinic and it's done. Here, it's impossible. We have too many hospitals. So what, so the video capture that, for example, Brandon is mentioning is fantastic, but sometimes I cannot, I cannot show the parent what, what I'm in the microscope and showing the parent what the kid has or what. Where's the cholecystoma or if there's a skin pearl that I need to remove. And it's very important for a parent to see, to trust you is their child. Also people as adults, they're, they're, they make their own decisions, but parents, they have a much better understanding of what should be done if they're able to see. So I think that that's of paramount importance. There are times where I've seen a post-op where I think it looks great. And then the tympanogram shows still uh, a type B and I don't see a perforation. Okay. And sure enough, I take an endoscope and yes, I, there's a teeny tiny perforation very anteriorly. And I say, okay, well, yeah, yeah, this one, this one didn't work. And you can document that. Likewise, it's important, I think, to, for your learning curve, for, to video your cases. If you can video your cases, I think it's great because when, when you feel that things have gone perfectly, you know, get the results that you want, it's good to go back to those videos and review them. So I have a gazillion amount of, uh, of videos that I would love to be able to, <laughs> but, but they're there and, and, and they're available. So. All of those things, I think, that are, are, are very important in the clinic and in the, in the operating room. Yeah, I'm glad we brought that point up because I agree. I think it helps a lot diagnostically in clinic. And I just only do peds. And so when the parents see what you're talking about, you get on the same page. And like you said, Alejo, they just want to know that what they're doing for their kid is the right thing to do. Um, but the other thing I, I really have enjoyed seeing in the last couple of years with the evolution of the endoscopic ear is that it seems very global in the sense of the professional connections have really been among different countries. How is that? Do you find that to be true as the pioneers of endoscopic ear surgery? And how do you think that's helped the field? It's definitely true. I think it's, I've, you know, before I started using the endoscope, I, you know, I went to some, a few, one or maybe one or two international meetings, but that really, it really created a lot of opportunities to meet other, go to other you know, countries, meet a lot of other surgeons, learn a lot of new, uh, a lot of different uh, new techniques from meeting other surgeons. And I, it's probably one of the kind of highlights of my career. I mean, you know, making all these connections and friends and 
international locations. And I, every time I go to one of these meetings, I learn something new. And so, I mean, I think we're very fortunate here in the U S that we have a really, you know, fantastic medical medicine training, both at the medical school level and certainly in residency, uh, in residency and beyond that a lot of places don't have, but that, that certainly doesn't mean that we know it all. And I've, I've learned every, everywhere I've visited, I've learned, learned something new and I've met just some incredible people and, and it just gives you a neat perspective on, on how, how, you know, odontology is practiced across the world and whether they have extensive resources or have almost no resources, you, there's lots you can learn from, from meeting, you know, different people across the world. Well, is there anything that you do now that you did differently when you started? I think that we've touched upon most of the, most of the things that I do different. I think that, for example, the injection that I mentioned, I don't do that anymore. Brandon mentioned using the speculum. I did that as well to do the injections. I don't do that anymore. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've gone through a lot of ways to try to control bleeding. So when I could use cotton balls in the ear, that was, that is the, if you have that, you have no idea how lucky you guys are. That is the best way to control bleeding in the, in the ear. So when I could use those, I use those. I've tried, I like today, I like the, the, the mini neuropathies caught in the string are, are useful. I cannot do that anymore. So I have to leave the strings on. It's okay if you leave the strings on. It's not a big deal. But it's better if you don't. I use, I've used Fibrilar as an, is a good way of, of lifting of, is similar, is absorbable. So you can use it in every setting and it's useful. I've used something called Snow. I'm not sure, quite honestly, I don't know which one is cheaper, but they're very similar. Maybe Fibrilar became, it becomes less mushy. Snow becomes mushy towards after it's it, it's it's uh, moist, so I don't like that. So, but those would be my choice today is the same as Brandon, the neuropathy with or without the string, I guess. Brian, any final tips or pearls? I think other than just yeah, LA already brought this up before on not um, not trying to add one of these on the end of a long day. I think. You know, give yourself a, a shot at being successful. Don't, don't, don't start with something really complicated. You know, if you have a light day, that's a perfect a light day in the OR, like one or two cases, that's a perfect day to maybe start using this technique. You know, you really, again, have to be patient and, and using the technique because it will be frustrating at first. I think one of the wonderful things is, you know, again, we can video at the microscope, but video at the endoscope is really like being in the surgeon's shoes. And so there are lots of videos online on different techniques. Now, granted, most of them are heavily edited, myself included, but you get at least a gist on how something's done. And so there's, even though you can't, you know, we're not doing the, you know, in-person courses right now, there are lots of opportunities on how to learn different techniques and how to use them to scope for different indications that are available online that are free. That are, that are a great resource. I'm glad you brought that up, Brandon. Can you uh, remind me and, and for our listeners, what's the, what's the name of your YouTube channel? Because you do have a lot of videos that you've put up. So that mine's, are cool. oh, I haven't put up one lately, but I need to. Uh, mine's called Otologic Surgery, and it has a picture of me on it. So, Horst, and there's one of the stapes on it too, I think. But there's probably 30 or 40 videos on there of different things. Not all were endoscopic. Some are traditional, traditional microscopic approaches. But there, yeah, there's, and there's plenty of other good ones. I know my partner, Dr. Kutz, has one. I know Alejo has a, a website too. 
or our YouTube channel as well. There, there are lots of them out there that are great. And actually there's the international working groups, uh, website that has links to videos. It's the international working group of endoscopic ear surgery. Alejo is on the a board of that. And, you know, maybe we can email you guys links that you can. Yeah, we can podcast. put that in the note. Yeah, sure. So, and that, and that has links to multiple different YouTube channels. Yeah, there is there is um, a wonderful, wonderful channel from our colleagues in Australia. Yeah, which is a basically a, a online dissecting course with lots of pictures and lots of videos on how to do endoscopic dissection on, on, on cadavers. So that is a, a very valuable tool to use. And in terms of tips. I think that a very important tip that is not mine is actually Brandon that you forgot to mention. So I'm going to give it is your endoscope is not, I mean, we talk about one-handed technique, but really it is not. Okay. Your endoscope is there. You can use it as a tool as well. You can use the endoscope to push quantum balls down, to release prosthesis down. You need to move the endoscope. The hand of your endoscope is dynamic. When I see, and that's some of the things that, that, that I did for many years was we always said that the end, you need to rest the endoscope and the upper superior portion of the ear canal so that you stabilize the lens. But the fact is that if you do that, you always, that endoscope is always going to be looking inferiorly. And so it's very important that you twist your hand and move your hand down so you can look at the upper corner and people that are starting don't re that is one of the biggest frustrations when you're starting is that yes you can see inferiorly but it's very hard to see superiorly and that is just as simple as move your hand turn your hand down to the ear canal so your endoscope can be facing up and into that superior corner and that makes your life easy. Yes, at the beginning, you might do a little bit of chopsticking with your other instruments because they're going to be close, but you, you just pull it out a little bit. That's the other thing. When you're chopsticking, pull your endoscope out and give your other hand a little bit more space to work. Those are two things that are very important and it, they, become, they become almost natural once you've done enough. But at the beginning, you... Uh, it's, it's not, it's not intuitive. And so you get to it eventually, but if you, you create a mental note when you're doing those cases, that that's something that you need to do, it will, it will change how facile you'll be able to achieve your goals during the surgery. Awesome. I think you guys have really, um, uh, given us some good, good tips and good pearls for, for all of our listeners. I think this is probably a, a great place to, to land this thing. I don't know. What do you guys think? Gopi, anything, any other uh, no, I just burning think questions? Our, no, thank you to our guests, um, Brandon Alejo. You guys are pioneers in our field. I love endoscopics at ear surgery. I don't think I truly understood middle ear anatomy until I got to see it with the endoscope. Frankly, I love it because I, I, I like sinus surgery and I do kids and so what we do a lot with the endoscope so it's definitely opened up a world to me and I love the ability as Ashley brought up to use the scope in clinic to make better uh, diagnostic as well as shared deci decision making with the patient and families to our listeners you can find us on uh, SoundCloud Apple Spotify iHeartRadio please reach out to us we'd love to hear from you questions topics if you want to come on the show any feedback there is yeah, please rate, um, subscribe, and share this podcast with someone else you might feel would be interested in the topic. Uh, also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at underscore backtable ENT. So I think that's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs>
Thanks, everybody. 